Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning, Blackfriars. How are you doing? Yeah. Terrific, terrific. Happy Pentecost Sunday. I'll share more about that a bit later on. Uh, but we are now, believe it or not, on week 11 of our series of talks all centered around the theme of peace. And today we're looking at peace on mission or peace for the world. And I want to start by diving straight into our Bible passage for this morning, which is Isaiah chapter 52. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. And uh, if not, don't worry, the words will be on the screen behind me. And uh, we're going to begin to read from verse 1. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. Awake, awake, Zion, clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust, rise up, sit enthroned, Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, daughter Zion, now a captive. For this is what the Lord says, you were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. At first my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately Assyria has oppressed them, and now what do I have here, declares the Lord. For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock. And all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore my people will know my name in that day. They will know it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. Okay, what on earth has that got to do with our subject of the day, peace on mission? Well, the chapter starts with the prophet Isaiah addressing Jerusalem. Awake, awake, Zion, clothe yourself with garments of splendor, Jerusalem. But we go on to find out that Jerusalem is not in great shape. Uh, Verse 2 tells us that she is a captive. Verse 4 tells us that whoever is ruling her is mocking her. Verse 9 tells us that Jerusalem is in ruins. And this is because Jerusalem has been ransacked by the Babylonian army. The passage tells us it was Egypt, then Assyria. Now it's the Babylonians and the people of Jerusalem have been carted off into exile in Babylon, leaving only a remnant behind. So we have, if you will, at the start of this passage, a tale of two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. And to fully understand what's going on in these verses, we need to realize that both of these cities represent something way bigger than simply their geographical location. A bit like if I was referring to Hollywood, I probably would not be referring to a tiny patch of land somewhere in California, but rather something much bigger like the whole film industry. So in the same way, these two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon, represent something far larger. In fact, you could argue that from one angle, the whole of the Bible story is an epic tale of a battle between these two cities. So we need to understand what they represent. So let's start with Babylon. 
Babylon first makes an appearance in the Bible in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, There, for one time only, it goes by a different name, that of Babel, but it's basically the same place in Mesopotamia. Now, Babel is probably best known for its tower, the Tower of Babel, represented in various pieces of art through history. I have here a tower that I will be referring to later on in the talk. Please contain your excitement for uh, the time being. But actually, Genesis 11 tells us that Babel was way more than simply a tower. It was a whole city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Let me read uh, Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4, where we see that the people of Babel come together and say this. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the earth. So right at the outset, we hear that Babylon, or Babel, has got two main issues. Firstly, this is a city where people want to make a name for themselves rather than for God. So Babylon's a place of self, a place of greed and pride and lust for power. But the second issue is this is because they do not want to be scattered over the face of the earth. Here's why this is significant. It is because it is a direct violation of the commission God has given to humankind earlier on in Genesis. Uh, I've often reflected since uh, Andy Crouch, brilliant author and speaker, was with us actually when he first came about five or six years ago now. uh, He made an observation in Genesis that I'd never seen before. When God puts Adam and Eve in the garden paradise in Genesis 1, as early as Genesis 2, we're told outside of the garden, there is gold in the land that is really good. In other words, the point he made was this. God's master plan was never that humankind stay in this garden paradise, but that they boldly go where no man has gone before. They get out of the garden. They discover things like gold. They melt it down, mine it, and sculpt it into artifacts for the glory of the Creator. If I had to summarize or put God's commission to humankind in words, I would describe it like this. And I've put it on the screen uh, to be helpful to you. God says this, I am calling you as my image bearers to go into the world, to steward my creation, to further its beauty, to create, to rule, to reign, and to make this world everything it can be. This is our call. And the people of Babylon just go, no, don't fancy it. In other words, Babylon is a place where people put personal comfort and security over the mission of God, the amazingly risky adventure that God has called humankind to. And so right at the outset, Babylon, Babel, becomes less of a city and more of an entire value system, self focused value system. And from Genesis chapter 11 onwards, one of the most dominant metaphors in the whole of the Bible is of humankind being trapped in Babylon. Humanity is trapped in this value system, and whenever humankind lives in Babylon, it always ends in tears. The way it's worked out in Isaiah 52 is it leads to dust and chains. Slavery and living for nothingness in particular. This is life In Babylon, dust and chains, when you live in the wrong value system. I want to show you a little illustration of what I mean by the wrong value system by showing you a three-minute clip from one of my favorite TED Talks. Uh, This is given by a quite brilliant psychologist called Paul Piff. And you may well have seen it. It's called Does Money Make Us Mean or the Science of Greed? And I think it's a great example of what can happen when you take a good thing like money, which can be an amazing tool for the stewarding of God's creation, 
What happens to money, to our world, and to us when it becomes part of the wrong value system? And this clip starts with Paul Piff recounting a very famous experiment looking at Monopoly players. And in these games of Monopoly, players were randomly assigned to either being a rich player or a poor player. The rich player was given way more money, way more properties, houses and hotels, and way more freedom to move around the board. They had two die rather than one dice. Rich player, poor player, here is just some of what they observed. Let's play the clip now. As the game unfolded, we saw very notable differences and dramatic differences begin to emerge between the two players. The rich player started to move around the board louder, literally smacking the board with their piece as he went around. Mm. We were more likely to see signs of dominance and nonverbal signs of display, uh, displays of power and celebration among the rich players. All right, we had a bowl of pretzels positioned off to the side. It's on the bottom right corner there. That, that allowed us to watch participants' consumatory behavior. So we're just tracking how many pretzels participants eat. And those rich players start to eat more pretzels. And as the game went on, one of the really interesting and dramatic patterns that we observed begin to emerge was that the rich players actually started to become ruder for the other person. Less and less sensitive to the plight of those poor, poor players and more and more demonstrative of their material success. Now this game of monopoly can be used as a metaphor for understanding society and its hierarchical structure wherein some people have a lot of wealth and a lot of status and a lot of people don't. They have a lot less wealth. What we've been finding across dozens of studies and thousands of participants across this country is that as a person's levels of wealth increase, their feelings of compassion and empathy go down. And their feelings of entitlement, of deservingness, and their ideology of self-interest increases. We've even studied cars not just any cars, but whether drivers of different kinds of cars are more or less inclined to break the law. In one of these studies, we looked at whether drivers would stop for a pedestrian that we had posed waiting across at a crosswalk. Now, in California, as you all know, because I'm sure we all do this, it's the law to stop for a pedestrian who's waiting across. So here's an example of how we did it. That's our Confederate off to the left, posing as a pedestrian. He approaches as the red truck successfully stops. In typical California fashion, it's, it's overtaken by the bus who almost runs our pedestrian <laughs> over. Now here's an example of a more expensive car, a Prius driving through and a BMW doing the same. So we did this for hundreds of vehicles on several days, just tracking who stops and who doesn't. What we found was that as the expensiveness of a car increased, <laughs> the driver's tendencies to break the law increased as well. That talk is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, it is a quite staggering thing to me that you could line everybody up in, everybody up in London, poorest to richest, and you would likely find a correlation between compassion and empathy at one end of the spectrum and entitlement and self-interest at the other.
Now, just to be clear, this is not, this is not, and it's important this, it's not about bashing rich people. Jesus loves rich people. He hung out with them and was despised for doing so. All I'm trying to highlight is what can happen when a good thing like money, amazing tool for stewarding creation, what happens when it becomes part of the wrong value system. Us, our society, others, we become less of the people we were created to be. Babylon's a city of dust and chains. More than this, actually, uh, those of you who know the story of Babel in Genesis 11 will, uh, I'm sure, know that it was a place of one common language. Everyone spoke the same language there. Here's why a lot of commentators see that as significant. When there is one common language, what you often find is it's a place of racism, bigotry, and forced oppression. A bit like when a dominant culture conquers a territory and forces everyone to speak the language of the dominant culture. The most obvious example of this would be the Roman Empire, which, by the way, by the way, 1 Peter chapter 5 is called Babylon by the writer because it's seen as having the same value system. Now, of course, across the Roman Empire, put the next uh, slide up, huge, vast area. Dozens and dozens of languages would be spoken there. But if you want to make it in the Roman Empire, if you want to be wealthy and successful and famous, then you have to speak the language of the empire. You have to dress like them and talk like them and think like them. And when you do, it's actually possible to do very well for yourself, indeed, in a city like Babylon. You can really, really succeed in Babylon, but here is the deal. When you succeed in the Babylonian value system, it is always at the expense of somebody else. You can be the person that eats all the pretzels in Babylon. It just means somebody else goes hungry. You can be the person that owns all the properties on the Monopoly board in Babylon. It just means somebody else goes homeless. You can drive a BMW in Babylon and speed to your meetings because you're so important and you need to get there, but it means somebody else is almost mown down on the pavement. This is life in Babylon, a city of dust and chains, slavery for myself and for others. There is no peace there. We actually have modern-day references to the struggle with this value system that is Babylon. The most obvious one would be the song by Boney M. Does anyone know the song that I'm referring to? If you put just Boney M up on the screen, there's Boney M there. We have to get Dave and Lars an outfit like that, I think. There we go. <laughs> You'll know it if I start singing it. Now our worship leader's moved on. Time for me to audition for the band. <laughs> By the rivers of Babylon. Anyone know it now? There we sat down. 1978 this came out. Yeah, we wet. That was before I was born, I want to be clear. <laughs> when we remembered Zion. Hands up, if you've heard that song before? Yeah, most of us. That is actually a lament based on Psalm 137 about what it is to live in a repressive society. Oh, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered a different kind of city, a different kind of value system. So what on earth is God going to do about Babylon? Well, Genesis chapter 11, first of all, they're building this amazing tower to the heavens, and we're told God comes and looks down. There's deliberate sarcasm there, as if like, <laughs> is that the best that you can do? But then we're told that God looks at the city of Babylon, and he's so struck by the evil there that he actually says, well, if this goes unchecked, just hold that for now, then there is no end to the evil that humankind is capable of. And so what he does is he confuses the language and he scatters people over the earth. There we go, just there, and one there, and one for you, and one for you. So what's happened is languages are confused. 
People are scattered over the earth, but what's happened is it's not destroyed the problem of Babylon. It's, it's, it's like an act of mercy. It's put a cap on the evil that people are capable of, but it's just like spread the problem all over the earth, Genesis 11. So what happens in Genesis 12 is this. God comes to a guy called Abraham and he says, I want you to leave your people and your father's household. Come out of that value system and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And therein begins the story of the creation of a new city. Not just the people of Israel, but the city of Jerusalem itself, which represents something far bigger than simply its geographical location. It's a place of righteousness and justice and peace, perfect peace. Psalm 48 describes Jerusalem as the joy of the whole earth. And therein, through the twists and turns of the biblical narrative and the twists and turns of human history, there is basically an epic battle between these two cities, between these two value systems, Babylon and Jerusalem. And let me be clear, the fighting is fierce. And here is the reason. Babylon absolutely hates Jerusalem. Babylon despises, cannot abide Jerusalem. Sometimes the language in the Bible is very graphic on this. It's probably at its most graphic in Revelation chapter 17, where the writer John has a vision of a woman, and the woman, uh, next slide, has got Babylon the Great written on her forehead, and she is described as being drunk with the blood of the people of Jerusalem of the people of a different kind of value system. That's how much Babylon hates Jerusalem. And here in Isaiah chapter 52, to all intents and purposes, it looks like Babylon has won. Jerusalem's in ruins. It's been totally destroyed. You know, thousands of years later, when I watch the news, doesn't it look like Babylon has won? When you pick up the newspaper on the tube tomorrow morning, doesn't it look like Babylon has won? Racism, bigotry, scandal, homophobia, child abuse, slavery, corruption, greed and selfishness of every kind. Doesn't it look like Babylon has won? Oh, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered a different, a better kind of value system. So what on earth is God going to do about this? How's Jerusalem going to beat Babylon? Well, let's go to the end of Isaiah chapter 52 before we come back to the middle and get practical because we have a hint of what is coming. I find this very moving. We have a city basically in ruins on its knees. And then the prophet says this, verses 13 to 15, they'll come up on the screen, a servant's going to come. And this servant is going to be marred beyond any kind of human likeness. This is going to be a suffering servant. And somehow, through the suffering servant, many nations are going to get sprinkled. That's priestly language for atonement, being put right with God. Many nations will be put right with God. They'll be freed from Babylon through the suffering servant. Kings are going to shut their mouths because of the suffering servant. What does that mean? Well, kings are people who build cities based on Babylonian values. To make this as prosperous as we possibly can. And they do so by the opening of their mouths. But the prophet is foreseeing a time when the most powerful, the richest, the famous, the celebrities in all the world are basically going to shut up in the sight of someone far greater. 
Oh, in our age of angry social media, doesn't that feel good? Oh, the peace. The suffering servant is going to come and make everything right. Jesus is going to come and he's going to go through the cross. And in light of the cross, everything is going to change. In other words, God's master strategy for defeating Babylon is sacrificial love. And in the light of sacrificial love, all the values of Babylon are going to be neutered and broken. I could be the richest man in all of the world, but if I add in sacrificial love, all of that money is simply there to be generous, to serve and bless other people. I could be the most powerful man in all of human history, but when you add in sacrificial love, all those titles and responsibilities, they're just there to serve and bless other people. The power of lust is broken in the light of sacrificial love. Why? Because it means other people are not objects to gratify my sensual desires. They are instead people to love and serve. And I could go on and on and on. All the values of Babylon are broken in the light of the cross, in the light of sacrificial love. And here's what I love most about Isaiah 52. If we choose, we can make Jerusalem's story ours, if we want it. In other words, not only can we be freed from the dust and chains of Babylon, but we can be instrumental in Babylon's downfall. We get freed from Babylon, but we help to bring it down. And so I want to finish by getting really practical. I want to suggest three things from Isaiah 52 that can help us make Jerusalem's story our story. How do we get freed from Babylon, and then how do we bring it down? Number one, we come to God and experience the transforming power of his sacrificial love for ourselves. You know, I meet a whole load of people who basically think, I've lived so long in Babylon. Oh, the things I've done, I think God's kind of forgotten me. I mean, that, that's how the Israelites feel. At this point in their history, it's like, we're in exile. God, have you forgotten us? I came across uh, what I found to be a very amusing uh, juxtaposition of books. I actually saw this online, but uh, I believe it's in a bookshop in London. If you put, put the next slide up. It's uh, Joyce Meyer's, God's not mad at you. Right next to, he's just not that into you. <laughs> when I saw this, I was like, Lord, he's, he's had a message for me. God's not mad at you. He's just not that into you. You know, in 20 years or so of some kind of pastoral ministry, I have come across a version of this kind of destructive thinking pretty much more than anything or everything else, even from followers of Jesus who get the importance of the cross and forgiveness. I've heard people say things like, yeah, I understand the cross. My sins are forgiven. Whoop. But oh, Andy, if you knew the things I've done in Babylon, if you knew what my thought life was like, if you knew how little I prayed and read the Bible, I just don't think he's that keen. Oh, I can see why he'd love those people over there. I get them. I mean, they're amazing. Me? No. I, he may not be mad at me. I just don't think he's that keen on me. That is a lie. In fact, it's one of the most destructive and insidious lies the devil ever throws at us. It robs us of so much joy and peace and freedom. Have you tasted the transforming power of the love of God? Do you know how much he loves you? He's crazy about you. Let me illustrate this. Um, th this here is my childhood teddy. This, oh, bless you. That's really sweet. <laughs> oh, well, thanks for that. This, this is mink, everybody. This is mink. Um, I've had mink since I was born. 
And uh, for the sake of the podcast, uh, Minky's not in great shape. Um, he's, uh, he's lost half of his clothes. Uh, he's very badly stained. He's got uh, stuffing coming out of his arm and his ear. He, um, <laughs> he, he really, have a smell of that. <laughs> 39 years of childhood bodily fluids <laughs> fermenting over time. Here's Mink. <laughs> now, the point is this. Mink is utterly and completely worthless to anyone in this room. Like if I went to one of the parents in this service and say, hey, I've got a gift for your kids, here you go. The parents would be like, oh, great, thanks. Like, I'm not, I might catch something. Like, Mink is utterly and completely worthless, but to the owner, me, he is priceless. I, I can't throw Mink away. We got, we got history, me and Mink. <laughs> I, I remember the night Mink comforted me when I heard the news my granddad had died. I remember snuggling Mink on days after being very badly physically and verbally bullied at school and feeling like I had no friends in the world. To you, he's worthless. To the owner, he is priceless. This is how God loves us. Author Philip Yancey puts it like this. Some things are loved because they are worthy. The examples would be an amazing celebrity, Brilliant sports star, Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, brilliant scientist, Albert Einstein. Like, we love them because, wow, they're amazing. How can we not love them? They're incredible. Some things are loved because they are worthy. Other things, he says, are worthy because they are loved. And the example he gives is a ragdoll whose entire worth and value comes from the love of the owner. This is how God loves us. Those of you who know me will know this to be true. I am utterly and totally broken. I am more flawed and sinful than I can put into words. I am a ragdoll, but I am his ragdoll, so I am priceless to him. That's how God loves us. That's how God loves you. Have you tasted the power of that? I mean, this is what Jerusalem experiences in Isaiah 52. Jerusalem has done nothing worthy of salvation. The whole reason Jerusalem's gone into exile is they've basically adopted Babylonian practices. Things like child sacrifice. And God's eventually gone like, I've got to withdraw my hand. This isn't what Jerusalem's supposed to be. Jerusalem doesn't deserve anything. And yet the prophet comes, awake, awake to this news. It's amazing. Put on your garments of splendor. Because they deserve it? No. But because they're his ragdoll. When it says in verse 2, the uncircumcised and defiled will not be found in you anymore. Well, the uncircumcised and defiled, they were the Babylonians. In other words, the prophet is saying the power of Babylon will be completely broken over your life. When it says the Lord's going to lay bare his holy arm, it's literally a metaphor like he's he's a manual laborer. He's rolling up his sleeves. I'm going to get to work and make this happen. Because Jerusalem deserves it? No, but because they're his ragdoll. This is how you're loved. This is how Babylon falls. Have you tasted the power of that? Hey, it's Pentecost Sunday. And at the end of this talk, I'm going to pray a simple prayer. Holy Spirit, come like you did at Pentecost. And one of the things I'm going to pray is that negative self-talk and self-hatred would be broken and gone in the name of Jesus. That you would know it as a new day of, oh, I'm a ragdoll, but I'm his, so I'm priceless to him. That's how loved you are. This is how Babylon falls and Jerusalem wins. It all changes in the light of the cross. That's how much he loves us. He gave everything. Second way, Babylon falls. 
is we have to share this news with others. Verse 7, oh, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. It's actually a scene I find really moving. I don't know why it moved me, it just really did. You've got a picture of this city just utterly broken and on its knees. And then you have a picture of a runner coming. And there's the watchman on the wall thinking, oh no, has the enemy triumphed even more? Are they coming for us? And the, 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 what, the, the runner starts shouting, no, peace, glad tidings, salvation. And soon the watchman get, get a gist of what they're saying and they're jumping for joy and soon the whole city is on its feet and rejoicing. That's a picture of our call. In fact, Paul in the New Testament, Romans chapter 10, if you want to check it out, he uses that verse as an example of what we're to be as followers of Jesus. He says, how are people going to hear this amazing news if people like us don't open our mouths? But this comes with a warning and a promise. The warning is this, if we open our mouths to share this news, Babylon will hate it. Babylon will try and shame us. I don't believe that rubbish, do you? What a load of rubbish. No, no, look at the values of Babylon. Money, power, pleasure. Babylon will shame us. But here's the promise. There are people who are desperate to hear this, and they are those in dust and chains. And so for Babylon to fall, what God is basically looking for is men and women who will risk the shame of Babylon for the sake of those in dust and chains. just want to ask you, will you be those people? Will you be people with beautiful feet who say, I'm going to risk. I know it'll be embarrassing. I know it might be a bit awkward showing my faith, but I reckon there might be some people with dust and chains in my office, in my neighborhood, down my street. Will you risk the shame of Babylon for the sake of those in dust and chains? I mean, just one really practical way you can do this. Alpha Week 2, Wednesday this week, Covent Garden, really central. Who is Jesus, the most brilliant First step to take in exploring faith. You invite 50 people, you'll get a taste of the Babylonian value system. Ridiculous thing to do. But I promise you, this city is littered with people in dust and chains right now. Are we going to be those with beautiful feet? How does Babylon fall? Oh, we taste the love of God. I'm his ragdoll. We then go and tell others. And then thirdly and finally, we build a better kind of city. We build a better kind of city. Uh, I wonder if those that I gave the bits of the tower to uh, earlier on in this talk, would you mind coming to the front really quickly and arranging yourself in order of the size of the tower that you got? Uh, some of you are hating me right now. Uh, please forgive me. This is church. You need to do that. Now, you can watch what these guys do while I keep talking. Because in this amazing story, Jerusalem versus Babylon, there is another moment in the story where people from lots of different nations are in the same city together. Only rather than in Babel, this time it's Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And when the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples, what happens is just like in Babel, there's a whole load of other languages. The gift of tongues is given. Only this time, rather than in Babel where there is confusion, this time there is unity, understanding, and the worship of God. And what I love about the day of Pentecost is it's not a complete reversal of Babel. Why? Because God doesn't give us all one same language again. No, he keeps the many different languages. He loves the diversity. But what we are to do, therefore, what the Spirit empowers us to do, is to build communities that are very diverse, but built on a foundation of sacrificial love. Behold the diversity of the church, kind of. And if this is to get cheesy for a moment, what we do is we work out 
how do we fit with each other? Like, who goes where? What part do I have to play? And step by step, bit by bit, we work this out and we build communities that are unified on a foundation of sacrificial love. This is the power of Pentecost. This is what the church is for. And as we do this in community after community, in borough after borough, in village after village, Jerusalem is established and Babylon falls. In fact, I wonder if you could act this out now by having one big group hug. And (laughs) what I'm doing in every service is I'm taking a photo of the group hug to see which service, come on, come on, no. <laughs> to see which service loves each other the most. Like, this, this is the church, right here. This is the church. <laughs> Some of you are like, we're just meeting for the first time, hi. <laughs> okay, your work is done, you may go and sit down. Round of applause for our volunteers. This is what we built. This is building a better kind of city. But, but, I would hate for you to think that all we have to do in terms of building a better city is basically tell other people and do churchy things. Build church together. Actually, what happens on Sundays is to roll out through the rest of the week. You see, when the prophet comes to Jerusalem in Isaiah 52, he says, don't just put on your garments of splendor, but I want you now to sit enthroned. That's a ruling and reigning word. That is basically, I want you to now build the cities that God originally intended. So the foundation of sacrificial love that we build here together as a church community is now to spill over into whatever we are doing Monday through Sunday. I want to give you a little example of this. This is from a book called Fruitfulness on the Frontline, written by a guy called Mark Green. And he tells the story of a lady called Shona, follower of Jesus, and she worked in a bank. And she was charged by her bank to reduce the outgoings. So she got hold of the balance sheet and she found a huge outgoing for 1.5 billion pounds. And she's like, whoa, what's that? Her boss said, oh, this is just bad debt. Hundreds of thousands of people in the UK have debts they can't pay. We basically just write this off. She's like, I'm going to explore this further. And she found the entire strategy for reducing this 1.5 billion pounds resided in a very soulless call centre where hundreds and hundreds of telephone operatives would spend on average five minutes calling some of these thousands and thousands of people who were in debt and basically harassing them to pay off a chunk of their debt. Five pound here, 20 pound there, 50 pound there, can't pay here, sorry, 14 pound there, 90 pound there. And it was all built on a philosophy that these people in debt who can't pay, they are bad people, they are cheating the system, and they've simply got into debt through their own foolishness. Well, Shona looked at this and thought, that's not the kind of city we're to build. That's not the kind of values of Jerusalem that I want to see established in my world. So she went to her bosses with a strategy. She said, rather than believing the worst of these people in debt, why don't we believe the best? Here's my proposal, she said. Rather than having like a five to seven minute phone call, I propose a minimum of of, of an hour phone call. And the whole purpose of that call, or maybe even a face-to-face meet, is rather than to claw money back to pay off the debt, to love and serve. Maybe these people are in debt through no fault of themselves. Maybe, you know, they've suddenly been made unemployed. Let's try and find them work. How can we serve you? She said, look, maybe people just need some basic training. Let's provide that in these hour phone calls. Her bosses were like, are you kidding me? Five minutes versus an hour, like 12 calls an hour versus seven or eight a day? We're going to lose the little money that we're making back. Shona's like, oh, give me a try. 
like, well, it's not doing that much good. Let's try it. So Shona got the whole of this Solus call center and she totally rechanged them. She re retrained them. She totally changed the culture. Like, let's believe the best of these people and let's now have hour-long phone calls at least. Let's love and serve. Within three years, Shona had recovered 500 million pounds of that 1.5 billion pound debt. And better still, she had helped thousands and thousands of people out of the dust and chains of debt and given them hope for the future. There is a disciple who is taking very seriously her call to build a better kind of city. And every time we do this, every time we work for the flourishing of our world, every time we choose to smile at and greet a neighbor rather than head down onto my next thing, every time I create a culture of generosity in my office, I want to get a round of drinks in rather than fostering a culture of selfishness and stinginess. Every time we put people above profits and ethics above success, every time we do excellent work because God loves excellent work, every time we do this, Jerusalem is further established and Babylon begins to fall selfish brick by selfish brick. This is our call. This is what the power of Pentecost is for. Not just staying and doing churchy things, but letting it flow out into the world Monday through Sunday. This is the power of Pentecost. This is what he wants to empower us to do. And as followers of this new value system, followers of the cross, followers of Jesus live this out, we get to the end of this story, Babylon versus Jerusalem. Revelation 18. Just a couple of chapters from the end. And we hear this great cry that ripples across the heavens. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And a new city, Jerusalem, is fully and finally established everywhere. God's values of peace and justice and righteousness and holiness and pure everywhere. This is our story if we want it. This is what the power of Pentecost is for. I wonder if the band could come up. Why don't we all stand to our feet? In a moment, I'm just going to pray a really simple prayer. Come Holy Spirit. Pentecost Sunday. And I just felt like maybe Jesus wants to do a number of different things today. Firstly, I wonder if there are people here and you feel like a ragdoll. And you need to know afresh that you are his and you are priceless to him. But maybe the t just the love of God will be made tangible for us today. I wonder for others if just the Holy Spirit wants to give power for mission. That for some of us, you're like, I need to draw a line in the sand. And from now on, I'm going to risk the shame of Babylon for the sake of those in dust and chains. I think as I pray, actually, some of you are going to have people coming to mind. Just nudges from the Holy Spirit. And then for others, I felt the Holy Spirit wants to empower us to build a better kind of city. For some, I felt like God wants to give gifts for leadership within the church. We feel part of our call is to start more services right the way across London. We need some more people to step up here as a result. But for some of you, you're kind of nursing a small call 
for leadership in church in the future. I feel there's fresh power from God if you want that. And for others, I feel there's fresh vision and power from God for your world of work, for what you do Monday through Sunday. So if you are thirsty, Pentecost Sunday, for more power from God, why don't you just get into your receiving from God place, whatever that looks like. Let me just pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Just wait in his presence. If you're like, I need more power from God right now, just ask him. For your work, just pray fresh calling from God now. Fresh vision. Power to build a better kind of city on the values of Jerusalem. I pray for power for mission. And I pray, Father, by your Holy Spirit, that the love of God would be made very real to people across this room. Come, Holy Spirit. 